Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Will Saunders. I'm a fourth-year PhD student at Boston University, where I study the atmospheres of Uranus and Neptune. I'm Melena Rice. I'm a fifth-year PhD student at Yale University, where I study the dynamics of planetary systems. And I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a fourth-year PhD student at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where I study transients and their local environments. You're listening to episode 43. Welcome to the world of science communication. If you're listening to this show or reading Astrobytes, you're no stranger to science communication. But have you thought about producing your own SciComm? It's actually not as hard as you might think. Getting started in SciComm can mean anything from, say, writing a multi-volume book series about the breeding patterns of the Austral Negrito bird, or <laughs> simply starting a Twitter thread about a birding documentary. <laughs> And that about covers it. Those are the only two categories within Psycom. <laughs> Nothing else. <laughs> Let's begin with what seem to be simple questions, but in true Astro Soundbite style, will not be. <laughs> First, what is science communication? The definition of communication is, according to Merriam-Webster, the act or process of using words, sounds, signs, or behaviors to express or exchange information or to express your ideas, thoughts, feelings, etc. to someone else. So, science communication is that, but make it science. Right, I usually do interpretive dance to communicate my feelings towards science and call it psychom. <laughs> it can count. So, it can be informal, it can be formal, it can be written, spoken, it can be live, recorded, you can have lots of different types of audiences, you could be paid, you could be unpaid. All of the above. Hopefully you're paid. <laughs> <laughs> we are not paid, I'll remind you. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Next question. Why is science communication important? Well, there are lots of reasons. And because I was organized this episode, I made a list. Nice. So number one, <laughs> so many astronomers are funded by grants from governmental institutions like NASA or the National Science Foundation. And these grants ultimately come from taxpayers' pockets. So in some ways, it kind of feels like we owe it to the public to show them that their money isn't being wasted. Number two, like outreach, SciComm is crucial for sharing our excitement with the general public. If you didn't grow up in an area where you could easily see the stars and you study astronomy today, chances are you're probably doing so because earlier in your career you were inspired by someone who does. Mm. And... Of course, number three, there are a variety of selfish reasons to do it as well. So science communication can help you stay updated on topics that you might not be currently studying. Seeing everyone else's excitement when you talk about your own research can be an incredibly validating experience and reinvigorate your own excitement for the topic. And finally, the ability to communicate your science can be directly transferred to grant applications, telescope proposals and to a lesser extent, research papers. It's just an incredibly valuable skill set to have in this field. I had this moment of realization last night where I was thinking about science communication and what, specifically in astronomy, is the benefit of science communication. And I feel like a lot of our job is really just to show people, and I guess I'm thinking in this context, kids, that you can really do anything. Mm. Like you can be whatever you want to be. You can do whatever you want to do. You can do astronomy if you want. <laughs> and you can make money doing it. That's wild. So <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think science communication is something where it can just really highlight that sense of awe that you can get from just being able to do anything. And like, there are so many possibilities that are out there. It is mind-boggling that we all get paid to do this, right? To do research in astronomy. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, well said, both of you. I think that's a great place to leave that answer for now. <laughs> and in this episode, we're going to share some of our own experiences, how we got started in SciComm, how we improved as communicators. And then we're going to hear from two SciComm veterans about their work, their experiences, advice for starting out, We'll stick a space out in there somewhere. <laughs> so I think a good place to kick off 
is with some personal stories. Um, Elena, do you want to share a story with us about how you got started in SciComm? Sure. Thinking about this actually led to the stark realization that I actually didn't do that much SciComm in undergrad. I was thinking back and I was really involved in astronomy-related extracurriculars, but it was mostly professional development or it was outreach and volunteer work, but it was usually more related to like community service and music and other aspects of my life that weren't related to science. So my first ever major foray into science communication was actually my last year of undergrad when I attended this conference called the Global Hands-On Universe Conference. Um, this was in 2016 in Stord, Norway, and I attended as part of this global science opera that I think I've mentioned earlier on some other episode. Mm -hmm. I tried to find which one and I couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> so this conference was really all about science communication, tools for science education across the world, including in developing countries and the ways that science and art could be brought together for educational purposes. And as part of the Global Science Opera, I first attended this conference, but then also put together this video with some other Berkeley undergrads at the time to explain what a few fundamental particles are in particle physics. So we made a short film a few minutes long that had illustrations, voiceovers, and music that we composed and recorded ourselves. And the film basically explained what quarks are and what photons and neutrinos are and so on and so forth. Just a couple of key concepts in particle physics. I would say this is probably not the normal way into SciComm, <laughs> flying to Norway and making a particle physics <laughs> video. But, you know, I don't think there really is necessarily a normal path. And something I really appreciated about this experience is that I was able to create something that lasted and that I could return to and look at in the future. And so in a way, we create knowledge every day as graduate students. But it was really exciting and rewarding to have something very concrete like a video that I could then return to. And it's a lot of fun to just look back and think of all the memories that I had that were associated with that experience. It's interesting that you gravitate toward this feeling of producing something concrete, because I mm. totally relate to that. When you produce a finished product, and especially a written product, you can kind of look at it once and see. A video, I think, is a similar thing. Podcast doesn't have quite the same feel, but there's a certain feeling of, I've produced this, it's always there, it's mine. And I've gotten mm -hmm. that feeling in SciComm. I've also gotten it through research when I published a paper. There's sort of that permanence. It's always going to be out there. It's a very powerful feeling. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not always true for all of SciComm. Mm -hmm. You can give talks that are mm -hmm. unrecorded. And true. so it's not always going to be something lasting. But I really appreciate when there is some sort of final product that I can reflect on. Uh, it's nice to look back and see how I've grown over the past five years. That's awesome. Absolutely. That's a great story. Thanks for sharing. Alex, do you have a story about how you got started in SciComm? I do, yeah. So I've actually done outreach on and off since high school, but maybe this gets into the gray area where I'm still not really sure what's considered outreach and what's considered science communication. And public <laughs> engagement is also a term that people throw around that you could toss into the mix here. But the first experience I had that actually felt like science communication instead of outreach was right after I finished undergrad in 2017. So in undergrad, I had a friend who specialized in physics and music. And together in 2017, her and I built a museum exhibit from scratch, actually all the way down to the wiring of the exhibit for the lights. Wow. For a festival in Goa, India called The Story of Space. And the festival was motivated, I think, by a lot of the same things as Melina, you were talking about in your experience, the organizers were interested in exploring how science and art could be combined to make space more tangible and relatable to the general public in a way that it often is not. So the exhibit that I and my friend ran was called Sounds of the Spectrum. And for it, we sonified elements based on the frequencies of their emission or absorption line spectra. That's so cool. There was a MIDI keyboard in the exhibit where people could play different combinations of elements and create chemical compositions related to stars, related to people, and hear the commonalities between those things. So our efforts were to try and bring home this idea that we are all made of star stuff in a way that you could actually hear instead of just being told it. You've mentioned this exhibit before, but I didn't realize how powerful it is. What an incredible idea. 
Yeah. Yeah. So it was just really exciting. And we've talked a lot about the benefits of sonification in the past. But in this case, I really loved how almost always the sounds connected to something in a person's previous experience. Mm. So somebody would come up to me afterward with a story about how the chemical composition of a star sounded exactly to them like a sound they had heard or a prayer from something they had done that morning. And it was just incredible. The things that they took away from that exhibit weren't just scientific. They were, I don't know, they felt more profound in a way. Maybe maybe that's sounding very pretentious. But anyway, it was just exciting to see all of the different connections that people had made from the sounds we'd created. I think that makes total sense. I mean, you've inspired people to be excited about something they may not otherwise have been by connecting it to something deeply personal. Even if the connection isn't like totally logical or really makes sense. If it drives (laughs) something emotional and powerful within them, they're going to remember that experience. Totally. Yeah. Right. Wish I could have seen it. Should we have you rebuild it for us? (laughs) (laughs) I sold the sounds somewhere. I think you played some of the sounds for us at one point. In a previous episode, it's definitely possible. We might have to go digging through the archives to find them. Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) And Milena, you played your particle physics video, at least a segment of it, on one of the episodes. I think so. It's definitely linked somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) Will, how about you? How did you get started in SciComm? Well, I think in episode 12 was the one where I mentioned my experience giving a radio interview in high school. And that was probably my first SciComm experience. But what I want to talk about now is how I got into writing uh, as SciComm. And growing up in school, I was always a strong writer and I always loved science, but I rarely combined them. And the first time I did was when I applied to AstroBytes in my first year of grad school. I thought this could be a really fun experience for me. As an important aside, AstroBytes is currently hiring. If you want to apply to AstroBytes, submit an application. It includes a sample AstroByte, a few short questions, and then you'll get a decision in a couple of weeks. And if you're lucky, a couple of weeks after that, we could be reading your name on this podcast. That is true. (laughs) But AstroBytes really is so much more than just a website. The network it connects you to, the community of AstroBiters, as both of our interviewees will mention in a few minutes, is incredibly powerful. I mean, that's the reason this podcast got started. That's a reason I know a lot of different people in SciComm. But what I learned writing for AstroBytes is that I'm better at writing than I enjoy it. And I think in my upbringing and my education, I was instilled with this idea you should always pursue the things you're good at. But I don't think that's 100% true because if you don't love them, you're just going to end up burning out. And so now I still write, but I'm much more selective about what I write. I write the things that really excite me. And when I do, I get to enjoy them so much more. And one of my favorite things to write is articles for children. So I found this Canadian children's science magazine called Brain Space, which is an augmented reality magazine for children ages 9 to 14. It's really cool. You use your phone to hover over the images and they come to life. They come to life? What does that mean? Yeah, can you elaborate a little bit? I mean, so there can be all sorts of different things, from animations of the way that dinosaurs move or the way that uh, different joints connect if you're doing an article about anatomy. It can be a video in one of my articles about the solar wind. There was a NASA video that just had a still image in the print magazine, but if you hover your phone over with the special app. It'll play a video showing how the solar wind hits into Earth's magnetosphere and is deflected. So 14 years old, is that a hard upper limit? Or <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's such a great point, Alex, because I thumb through the magazine and find myself really enjoying the articles. Writing for children is very similar to writing for adults. I think the major challenge is you can't use as complicated sentence structure And you can't use complicated analogies or concepts that only adults have access to. But good writing for children will also be enjoyed by adults. It's not pandering. It's just informational and inspirational. So I've published five pieces in Brainspace. And now that I have a connection with them, it's the magazine I'd like to send my stuff to because I know I can get it published there. Getting published in other magazines is really hard. And Carrie will explain in her interview how exactly that process works. But... I think doing this has taught me that you can communicate any complex idea in science to any audience. It takes passion, patience, and a lot of creativity, but when you do figure it out, it's incredibly rewarding. 
passion, creativity, and patience, or as we like to call it, PCP. Just takes a little bit of PCP to. We, 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 we I took a sip of tea, and you almost made me do a spit take there. I want to ruin my microphone. That's incredible, Will, and it's super cool because it's not something that I think would strike most people as an option to be able to just write up uh, a piece and send it out to a magazine, a Canadian magazine, especially like Brain Space, <laughs> that you might have never heard of otherwise. That's awesome. Yeah. Yes, thank you. This started with me sort of sending out a lot of pitch ideas to a lot of magazines, and they're the ones that were interested in uh, buying my piece. So that's how that went down. Oh, so it's paid. It is, yes. When you publish in a print magazine, you're usually paid by the word, and it's not a lot of money. It's <laughs> it's very little money, but it is a nice honorarium. Mm-hmm. Very cool. So I think it's time to move on to hear from our SciComm veteran interviewees. And we're going to start with Carrie. And she recently defended her PhD at BU and is now working full-time for the American Astronomical Society. And I will let her explain the details. My name is Carrie Hensley. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm the new communications specialist at the American Astronomical Society. We are really excited to hear about what you do as a communications specialist. But first of all, congratulations on recently defending your PhD. Thank you. Ooh, nice. I can't overstate how excited I am. (laughs) It's a wonderful milestone. So please tell us what you're going to be doing at AAS. Yeah, so my position comprises a number of roles within the AAS press office, as well as writing for their research news website, AAS Nova. So I guess the subheadings for my title are deputy press officer and co-editor of AAS Nova, which is a real mouthful. (laughs) Um, But I get to wear a lot of different hats, um, working both as part of the press service, where I interface with members of the press who want to advertise work being done at their institutions, for example, or reporters looking for astrophysicists or other experts as you know, consultations for their articles they're writing, as well as writing about new research that's being published in the AAS journals for AAS Nova. So I'm not exactly sure what you did for your PhD, but I'm assuming it didn't involve interacting with the press too often. Yeah, weirdly, no. (laughs) Is this a complete pivot for you? Or did you have experience during your PhD building up to this? So in my PhD work as a planetary scientist and space physicist, I definitely did not interface with the press at all. Uh, I don't think my research really rose to that level (laughs) at all. But I did get a little bit of experience doing that um, in a couple of different ways. The first was that back in 2018, ancient history at this point, I was the first ever AAS Media Fellow, which was a quarter-time position that they developed to help interested grad students get a little um, science communication and press experience. So as part of that process, I worked in the AAS press office and helped to organize the press conferences that they hold during the AAS meetings. And that whole experience got me really interested. I was already interested in science writing, but that made me get even more interested kind of in the whole process of how science stories get made. And based on that experience, I ended up applying to be a AAAS, so that's the American Association for the Advancement of Science. I added another A. Um, (laughs) So I ended up applying to be a Mass Media Science and Engineering Fellow. I really like these super long titles. Um, And as a part of that experience, I worked as a science journalist for Voice of America in Washington, D.C. So I went from being a scientist to a science writer to kind of like a member of the press where I got to interview people and write for a global audience, which was really cool. And all of these experiences kind of solidified my interest in science writing and made it a little bit hard to go back to grad school afterward. (laughs) Yeah, what would you say was the part of these experiences that most inspired you to keep pursuing SciComm as part of your career? Great question. I had always enjoyed writing, even as a kid, although I think back then I was not particularly good at it. And I started doing science writing through Astrobytes as a grad student because I had that, you know, childhood experience of enjoying writing. And I started really liking it and liking interfacing with the other Astrobytes authors and editing their work and having my work edited. 
And it became clear pretty quickly that I was spending way too much time on my writing and not enough time on my research, <laughs> which I think is kind of a common story that a lot of people who end up becoming science communicators can relate to. Sure. Um, and so for me, I think the sort of pivotal experience was that AAAS Mass Media Fellowship where I actually did science writing full time rather than just, you know, when I could squeeze it in. And for me, it was really eye-opening to get up in the morning way too early for, you know, my long commute into D.C. and to be really excited to go to work and to be have a job where I felt very focused and I felt like my work mattered and I was getting excellent feedback from wonderful mentors. And then to go home at the end of the day and still have, like, energy and excitement for my own personal projects. And that experience... Um, was very different from my grad school experience. So just, you know, sure. science writing became something that, you know, I enjoyed, I was good at, I felt was important, and I was improving at every day. And I think those kind of things combined made it clear that this could be a good career for me. We've talked on the show before about the importance of strong mentors that can guide you through a PhD and help you figure out all the ins and outs of the field. Did you also feel that you were able to accomplish the same thing, that you were able to find strong mentors and peers in your SCICOM roles? Absolutely. So I do want to start by saying something about my research advisor, Paul Withers, who despite having you know his main role be as my research advisor, was a great career advisor for me as well and did really support my interest in science communication and science writing. Whereas I think like some advisors might have thought that you know, my student should not be spending so much time on this. But I think for him, he could really see that success has many definitions and that, you know, this is what success was going to look like for me. So he was very supportive in that. And then through my various science writing experiences, I did gain a lot of really great mentors, first at the AAS and then um, through the AAAS program. And these experiences also allowed me to kind of gain a community of people who were interested in the same sort of things that I was, which was really wonderful because, you know, although I loved my, my graduate student cohort at BU, they just weren't interested in all these sorts of things that I was interested in, and that could feel a little bit isolating at times. So to have this network of grad students kind of across the United States who were going through the same things, balancing science communication and research, that sort of thing, and, you know, swapping leads about jobs and things like that, that was a really wonderful thing to have. And I definitely felt that that supported me through the PhD. That's amazing. Do you still keep in touch with them? Yeah, uh, the Mass Media Fellows have a an alumni Slack group for the entire cohort of Mass Media Fellows over the past 40 or however many years. Well, I guess, okay, the people who did it 40 years ago are not on our Slack channel. <laughs> um, but so yeah, there's a Slack channel for all of the Mass Media Fellow alums. And we do have a specific channel for the 2019 fellows. And we still have Zoom hangouts every once in a while. We're starting a book club soon. Oh, that's great. So yes, I think it's, it's safe to say Aww. that we, it was definitely a bonding experience for us. And we still do keep in touch. Well, so you've done written communication, audio communication, you've communicated to multiple different types of audiences. Which do you prefer the most? Which is the most exciting to you? I definitely prefer writing the most. Okay. I consider myself a very behind the scenes kind of person. So I let, like to let my writing speak for itself. But I would say that my one experience in scripting and voicing and putting together a video was probably the most exciting experience. <laughs> Do you have a particular written piece that you, you finished, you wrote, you sent it out and you were like, I nailed that? <laughs> or you feel really good about it after the fact? Hmm. <laughs> I don't know. Do writers ever feel like that? Um, <laughs> but I think I did have a piece recently that was really special to me that was about um, the Green Bank Telescope in Green Bank, West Virginia. So I'm from West Virginia, I grew up there, and my very first kind of real science experience happened there at the Governor's School for Math and Science back in like, oh gosh, 2006, I guess, as a teenager. Um, so 
during that experience, I got to use the Green Bank Telescope, and it wasn't like an overnight transformation into wanting to be an astronomer, but I think that experience sort of sat on the back burner over the years and kind of brought me to where I am now. So that was like a nice bringing things full circle kind of piece where I got to write about the science um, and the history of Green Bank and then add my own personal reflections as well. That is spectacular. And that was published in Highland Outdoors magazine, which is a West Virginia magazine about mostly outdoor sports and recreation. But as one of the editors said, you don't get more outdoors than outer space. (laughs) Is that something we can link to? Absolutely. It's a print magazine, but they do also post some of the articles online. So it is available online as well. Excellent. Do you have any resources or recommendations for people getting started or who want to improve as writers and communicators? Absolutely. A great resource for someone who's just getting started out in science communication, who's curious about sort of the options that exist or what it means to be a science communicator is ComSciCon, both the national and regional meetings. I attended back in 2018, and it was a great resource for me to both meet people in fields that were different from my own, as well as other astronomers who were interested in science communication, to understand the different kind of science communication careers that exist. So that's a really great resource. If you're interested in science journalism, there's a website called The Open Notebook, that has a lot of resources that get into sort of the nitty gritty about what it looks like to say, pitch an article or nudge people who haven't paid you for your article yet um, and things like that. So that's a really good resource for how it actually works because I think a lot of people would like to dip their toes into science journalism but think that they need to have a degree in journalism or some formal training. And that's just not true. Anyone can do it if you have the right resources to sort of get you started. So I I would definitely encourage anyone interested in science journalism to check out the resources there. In the case of the Green Bank piece, did you write it up and then pitch it to the magazine? This one was a little bit of a special case because I actually know um, the editor of that magazine. She was one of my fellow AAAS mass media fellows. Wow. So in that case, Uh, I was solicited to write the article, which is a very cool experience. (laughs) So how the process typically works is you approach the editor at whichever publication you're interested in writing for, and you say, you know, here's who I am, and here's my great idea for an article, and why you should publish it, and why I'm the perfect person to write about it. So, you know, in the case of the Green Bank article, it didn't work out this way because it was solicited. But had I been pitching it, I would have said, you know, I'm an astronomer and a science writer. Green Bank is this amazing place. I'm the right person to write about it because of my experience in writing astronomy and attending, you know, a program at this place all these years ago. Um, And typically the editor will get back to you and say either polite no thank you or yes, that sounds interesting. And then you begin a process of setting deadlines and figuring out who is going to be in your story, you know, if you need to do articles or if it's purely just looking at the science. But that is like pretty much how it goes. Out of the total number of times that you've pitched articles to different magazines, what fraction of them get responses that are, (laughs) yes, we would love to see this versus the polite no? (laughs) Oh, great question. I think... I've been very fortunate or perhaps very selective with who I have pitched to. (laughs) And so the responses have overwhelmingly been positive. I think I've only gotten ghosted by a publication once. That's pretty good. One of the things that's really important to a good pitch is being really familiar with what the publication wants. Mm. Not just the type of stories they publish in general, but, you know, if they've been publishing a ton of articles on exoplanets lately, they probably don't want another article on exoplanets. So not only being familiar with sort of the general topics or the scope or the level of the audience, but also what are they looking for right now Um, and trying to fill whatever, you know, niche that they didn't even know that they needed filled right now Mm. is my advice, I guess. Excellent. So that's a really interesting perspective because I think I just assumed that the chronology would be you write up this piece that you like about a certain topic in astronomy 
and then you say, what are the journals, the magazines that would accept this? But you're saying that maybe it's some iterative process between what you know they have published in the past and what you want to write about? Exactly. I think there are certain types of publications where you do start with a finished article. I think maybe opinion pieces tend to be a bit Mm. more like that. That's not something I have any experience in. But in general, you say, hey, I think there's this really cool science result. Sometimes you would say, I've been in contact with the relevant people. Here are the people I would want to interview for an article. Yeah, wow. Let me know if this sounds of so- like something that's of interest to you. Because if you go ahead and write up that whole article first, that's a huge amount of work. And, you know, you kind of right. want to know that it's going to be rewarded. <laughs> that's maybe not the right term. But, you know, you want to know that there's going to be a place for it before you put in all that work. Absolutely. Sure. Thanks for this description, the inside scoop on pitching, because that's one of the hardest things to do. And people don't realize that you can't write until you pitch. Yeah. Other than, you know, self-publishing and blogging is also a really great way to get started. But if you're interested in being paid for your science Mm -hmm. writing, which let's get real, we (laughs) all are, um, pitching and journalism Mm -hmm. is a great way to do that. But I understand it's very intimidating. It also always helps to have, you know, someone who can recommend you if you do manage to like build a relationship with someone. And a great way to do it is the annual science writers conference. I attended virtually last year and that was that actually led to one of my successful pitches. So I would say that's a great place to meet people, find out a lot of editors of many different kinds of publications come and you can find out what they're interested in. And there's even a pitch slam workshop where you can sign up to pitch an article to a panel of editors and they can say what you did well, what you didn't do well, and some of the, the pieces get picked up right away. So it's pretty cool and a great experience. It's another example of how your network was able to help you get articles published. It's the the power of networking should not be overlooked. Yeah, and it doesn't even have to be at the level of, oh, I would get coffee with this person. Just, you know, I've met this person at a conference and we had a polite 30 second conversation and now they've seen my face and know my name. Mm -hmm. And that can be honestly really helpful. Kerry, thank you so much for joining us this week. I loved hearing your inside scoop on how to pitch a magazine with your article idea. And that's something you don't hear enough about and is, as you said, a really daunting experience. So thanks again. Completely agree. Yeah, it's so different from the experiences that I've had. So I feel like I learned a lot in this one. Yeah, absolutely. It's really cool hearing a totally different angle on ways that you can communicate science that I just haven't thought about as Mm -hmm. much. And so now it's time for our semi-monthly SciComm Space Sound Off. (laughs) My name is Alex. (laughs) All right. Now here comes this week's space sound. So it didn't have a climax or anything. It kind of sounded fairly uniform throughout. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this is just because of the way that it sounded, but it kind of made me think of like dust hitting a detector as it's like moving through space or something like that. Mm. I imagine that's probably not what it was, but that's the mental image that came up in my mind. It's like a spacecraft moving through and like having something hit it every so often. To me, it sounded similar to the chandra sonifications that we've had in the past so my guess is that it's a sonification of an image coming out of chandra but exactly what the image might be i'm not entirely sure wouldn't be a star cluster we've done one of those in the past and it had like a clear swell and then fall off something fairly diffuse with some slightly more compact sources within it Yes, I would say that's an accurate description. It is similar to the astronomy. Yeah. Um, in, in this case, this is a sonification of M51, the Whirlpool Galaxy. And okay. the way this sonification works is it sort of sweeps 
around the galaxy like the second hand of a clock. So mm. it traces around from the core around the spiral arms of the Whirlpool galaxy, which is one of the prettiest galaxies because it's directly face on <laughs> to us. So you right. really see the full structure in all its glory. The notes of this sonification are mapped to a melodic minor scale. So it sounds kind of minor, kind of eerie, and each wavelength of light is assigned a different frequency range. So there's infrared, optical, UV, and X-ray in here. So you get a lot of different pitches in the minor scale, and you have the sort of the low hum throughout is the core of the galaxy sort of present the entire mm. time. That's awesome. And who created the sonification? This was made by NASA Marshall Space Flight Center. Got it. Cool. Very pro. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks for the space sound, Will. Yeah, thank you. That was beautiful. Yeah, I'm happy to have played it. so funny but it is <laughs> stupid uh, good rolling right, right along okay and next we get to hear from another SciComm veteran stephanie who is thrilled to be leading the social media campaign for one of the most exciting upcoming observatories take a listen Hi, I am Stephanie Deppa. Uh, I go by she, her pronouns, and I am the astronomy content strategist at the Vera C. Rubin Observatory. So please, I would really like to hear about what you do as an astronomy content strategist. It is a really exciting job. Yeah, I mean, honestly, when I saw the, the job description for this position, it was quite literally my dream job. Wow. So what I do is I essentially am the social media person for the observatory and like the broadest stroke of my job description. And so what that means is I am building up a social media strategy and plan for the observatory and then executing that plan. I'm also involved in some other projects that our team is working on, like we're making a series of videos that explain what the observatory does. And I'm also involved in um, building up some of the website content that will be public-facing not too long from now. Is the job going to get much more exciting once the observatory comes online? Oh, yeah. I'm so excited for when the observatory finally comes <laughs> online. We'll finally be taking data. There will be science to share. Right now, my job is building up the plans for when this stuff eventually happens. So I'm not super active on the observatory social media quite yet, but mm -hmm. I will be ramping up that capability of my job in like, over the next year, really. Uh, and then when, when first light happens sometime in early 2024, hopefully, mm -hmm. then we will be taking data and there will be science to share with people and that my job will become a lot more public facing and exciting. So a lot of that top tier science is going to flow through you to reach the public via social media. Yeah, me and uh, there are a couple other people on the communications team that will be responsible for crafting those messages that the public eventually sees about the science the observatory is doing. But yes, I'm going to be the person sharing all of the cool science with people pretty much, which is super cool. Absolutely. So let's go back to the beginning. How did you first become involved in science communication? So I can exactly pinpoint my launching off point into science communication to one specific event in graduate school. I was a graduate student at the University of Michigan working with the Dark Energy Survey, which was based at the Blanco Telescope down in Chile. Mm -hmm. And we were using the data set not to study dark energy, but to look for new solar system objects. So objects that are orbiting the sun within our own solar system. That's actually something I had a little bit of exposure to in undergrad. Yeah, yeah, it's super cool. And it's a really unique application of this data set. We're having it do something that it was not at all intended to do. It's an incredibly rich data set. Absolutely. Yeah, we were looking for new solar system objects in this data set. And we noticed one 
that appear to be moving very slowly on the night sky. So the way you observe and discover solar system objects is you look in repeated images of the same area of sky and you look for moving points of light. Because the stars will be in the same place. Yeah, yeah. So on Earth, we are looking out at the cosmos from a moving platform. And so the objects that are farthest away appear not to move. This is the same sensation you have Mm -hmm. when you're driving on a highway and you look off into the distance and the stuff that's really far away looks like it's not moving very fast relative to you. But then you look at the the grass that's rushing by right along the side of the road and and it's moving really fast. So the stuff that's closest to us in the solar system looks like it's moving faster when you compare it to the stuff that's farther away, like the stars that don't move on the Mm -hmm. night sky. And so we found a point of light that was moving pretty slowly, a lot slower than all of the other objects that we had been looking at. And that indicated to us that it was a lot farther away than all of the other objects that we had discovered up to that point. But the weird thing about this object was that it was also pretty bright. It was not like the brightest object that we had discovered, but it was very bright considering how far away it was. Our initial calculations put it into sort of this dwarf planet region of of size ranges. Okay. And so that was really exciting. That was interesting. It's a pretty big discovery. Yeah, it was the biggest object we had found. Turns out it's about 640 kilometers across, which is about the size of the U.S. state of Oregon. We worked with the press office at the University of Michigan, put out a press release. It got a whole bunch of coverage, and that ultimately led to me giving my very first public talk in a planetarium. Wow. And so my slides were projected up on the planetarium dome, and I got to give this public talk to about 50 people, and I loved it. It was (laughs) like, I felt so energized after that talk. And that I can pinpoint that exact talk to the start of my science communication career, because then after that, I was like, I need to do this more. I need to like, I need to talk to more people about the science I'm doing. I love this. I'm so excited by this. And that is really what kicked it off. And I started looking for other opportunities to just talk about my science and share my science and just astronomy in general with more people. So your first exposure to science communication was kind of giving a planetarium show of sorts, and you liked it instead of being afraid of presenting in front of all these people, you felt energized by it. That is so cool. Yes, I had so much fun. It was the most fun I had had up to that point in grad school. And I was like, hmm, maybe there's something here. (laughs) Maybe I should pursue this more. So what did you do next? Look for more opportunities like that? Yeah, we had a Society for Women in Physics organization at the University of Michigan that had all kinds of opportunities. And I started getting more involved with those, Mm -hmm. just trying to find more ways to talk to people about cool science that was happening. Right. So you were doing all these public talks, finding those opportunities to engage with people. And you also joined Astrobytes around the same time. Yeah. So actually that was, uh, I joined Astrobytes a year after that happened. And actually my partner was a graduate student at Cornell University. And one of his office mates is currently married to Susanna Collar. Oh, wow. Astrobytes. And so my second sort of like kicking off point into science communication was meeting Susanna Collar. And when I met her, I learned that you could have a full-time job doing science communication. And so that was the second sort of turning point in my mind on my path to pursuing science communication. Meeting Susanna taught me that you could get paid to do this full-time as a job. Yeah, wow. Susanna's kind of famous around Astrobytes, both for being highly involved in the collaboration and also working at AAS and getting us more intertwined with AAS in the most positive of ways. So a powerful force indeed. Yes. And so she directed me toward Astrobytes, mm-hmm. and she also directed me toward ComSciCon, yes. which is the Communicating Science Conference for Graduate Students. and It's a workshop series to help budding science communicators develop their skills. I was there this past summer and absolutely loved it. It's a fantastic opportunity. If you have a chance to do it, highly recommend. And so I started looking into that and I applied uh, right after she told me about it, basically. And I didn't get in. It's an Mm application-based sort of workshop. And I didn't get in that first time, but that spark was there and I just started looking for more opportunities to develop my skills, workshops that I could apply to, to 
develop my skills further and just those kinds of things. And so there was one at the University of Michigan that was for U of M students. And I applied to that one mm -hmm. and got in. It was not quite as competitive as ComSciCon, but that then was the way that I started building up my skill set in science communication. It was a communication fundamentals workshop and it Wonderful. was immensely helpful. Yeah, I had a similar experience. My first time applying for ComSciCon, I was not successful. But after another year of you know improving my communication skills, I was able to get in the second time. So yeah, definitely something to keep working at if the first time doesn't work out. Yeah. And there's also a lot of local chapters that aren't quite as competitive as the big national ComSciCon workshop. So mm -hmm. if you're interested in ComSciCon, look and see if there's a more local chapter near you. Absolutely. What audience do you enjoy communicating to the most? Would you say more of a younger audience or generalist adults? What do you think? I would say that my favorite kinds of people, I, I enjoy talking to everybody, really. Mm -hmm. But I do enjoy the, the science-interested sort of general public, younger, like teens, 20s kind of demographic. Okay. Um, because they... I mean, everybody's curious, but especially at that age, you are still learning so much about the world. And so that is like a really prime time to, I don't know, get in there and get your science to this demographic that is still kind of deciding what they want to do with their lives and maybe what they're interested in also. And so it's really fun to share these things that maybe a lot of other people might take for granted and just watch that light bulb moment happen for somebody. Yeah, wow, that can be very powerful. So when you were getting started and working your way up, improving as a communicator, did you have any resources you sort of found incredibly helpful or any recommendations for people? You mentioned a few already, but anything you want to touch on that people can use to improve as communicators? Yeah, so the, the biggest thing I will say is that there are some online communities of science communicators that all sort of help each other out. Mm -hmm. So the, the biggest thing I will say is if you are interested in science communication, you got to get on Twitter. I'm sorry. I know <laughs> <laughs> social media can be a black box of bad things sometimes, but a lot of science communication happens on Twitter and there's a great community of people mm -hmm. all talking about science communication. So that was the other thing that I found really useful when I was coming up um, is just finding those people who are active in the science communication community on Twitter and connecting with them. Don't be afraid to like reply to their messages and just become a name that appears in their mentions sometimes. Like be careful about it. Don't spam them. Of course. But, <laughs> but like I've, I have made several friends online. Like I consider them friends that I've never met in real life. And it's all because of social media. Science Twitter is a wholesome place. Most of the time, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it can be bad, but <laughs> yeah, a lot of, of the time it's good. <laughs> I will also mention the NPR SciCommerce group, which is a really okay. good community of science communication interested people. They are in the process of moving to a new organization. They won't be with NPR for much longer. So keep an eye out for that. They are changing ownership, I guess okay. you could say. That's another really good one to keep an eye out for. I have a SciComm resources page on my website that you can include in the show notes. Lovely. Yes, we will definitely do that. So I don't know if you have a clear idea of this yet, but what role do you see SciComm playing in your future career? Oh, it is my future career, 100%. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I find myself sometimes missing the research aspects of science. But I always have to remind myself that I did not really enjoy the day-to-day -day mm. of being a full-time researcher. Uh, I found it more frustrating than anything. Just especially in a highly technical field like astronomy, you're dealing with code all the time mm -hmm. and it's buggy. And I just never got into that as much. My favorite parts about being a researcher were talking to other people about my research. Okay, then. And so that is just pay attention to that. If you find yourself in the same sort of boat, maybe science communication is for you. It definitely was for me. And I definitely see myself doing this for a, a very long time. 
It was a real treat to talk to Stephanie because she's so excited about what she does and really inspired by her future SciComm career. And that's really nice to see. How could you not be, too? It's awesome having a position like that at the helm of such a massive enterprise and an observatory that so many different research groups are excited about. It's just got to be a fascinating position to be in. Yeah, also to be at a job where your job is basically to be excited and to just <laughs> be true. like super stoked for amazing science. Like, that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, that we're excited about it means she's doing her job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, can't wait to see what she puts out once the observatory comes online. Yeah. Stephanie, thanks again for joining us on the show this week. It's a real pleasure to have you. And now we're going to move along to our one-sentence summaries. Milena, you want to lead us off with a piece of advice you would give to someone starting out in SciComm? Yeah, so I think the main piece of advice that I'd like to give is just to know your audience, uh, because effective communication looks, to me, pretty different if you're talking to like 10-year-olds versus doing an astronomy on top event where everyone's you know drinking and cracking jokes versus if you're on a podcast. And where we're also cracking jokes. <laughs> <laughs> and there, there isn't really one catch-all style, I would say. I find that I really alter my approach depending on what the medium is and what the audience is and the context. And so I think if you want to communicate effectively, just broadly as a general point, it's really helpful to know who you're communicating with and like what exactly the goal is there. Um, so knowing your audience is really key. This is also just to add on, this isn't my one piece of advice, but there's actually an Astrobyte that's full of amazing advice from an Astrobytes writer who attended a ComSciCon conference a few years ago. So I encourage you to check that out as well. And we'll put that in the show notes. Great. Alex, how about you? What's your piece of advice that you would give? You don't have to be the foremost expert in a science topic to have meaningful things to say about it. You just have to know a little. I agree. Good advice. No, it's actually one sentence. <laughs> <laughs> Will, how about you? What's your one sentence summary? SciComm is a deeply personal field. So find the outlet and the style that you enjoy the most and produce content that is meaningful to you. That's a great one. Yeah. Thank you. I like that Stephanie kind of touched on that as well. Just being really in tune with yourself and noticing the aspects of science that you enjoy and seeking out paths that further accentuate those aspects of science. Mm -hmm. Yeah, now let's take a listen to Stephanie's advice in one sentence summary. Our perfectionist tendencies bring us down, but if you wait until the thing is perfect, then you're never going to do it. So just do it. That's really good advice. I agree, short and sweet. And now we'll take a listen to Carrie's one sentence summary. You don't have to know everything when you get started. So just pick something and give it a try and see what happens. Great minds think alike. I think Carrie and I had pretty much the same one-sentence summary. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, we conclude episode 43 of Astro Soundbites. Welcome to the world of science communication. If you want to read that Astrobyte that Milena mentioned, we'll link to it, as well as the real list of resources that Stephanie has put together on her website. So check out those links in the show notes. If your friends are wondering how to get involved in SciComm, share this episode with them or direct them to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or SoundCloud. Wait a second. I'm getting word. We are now on <laughs> Amazon Music and Audible. So I guess that makes us an audiobook. <laughs> We certainly have enough hours of recordings for it. <laughs> this is maybe the right time to mention, I just released a reading of that great multi-volume book series on the breeding patterns of the Austral Negrito bird. Alex, we're all huge fans of your Birders Monthly Newsletter, but this just isn't the time, buddy. <laughs> then when is the time? <laughs> it's always the time. <laughs> Thanks for listening, and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. episode i'm gonna say this sentence now we're gonna end the episode